Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come, inch over closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more. Your search is through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. We have two stories for you this evening. Our first, a cautionary tale of downward spirals and second chances. I give you... Still waters from the Claverhouse emails. They say your life flashes before your eyes before you die. Well, mine didn't. At least not literally. But maybe suicide doesn't count. All I remember going through my head as I stood on the parapet of the bridge and gazed down into the inky black waters beneath was a deep sense of resignation. I'd been over and over everything in my head thousands of times already. 
All that was left was just that one little step. Just to put one foot in front of the other. Kind of like I'd been doing my entire life. The cold night air felt fresh and cool against my face. Like the farewell kiss of a long-lost love. I closed my eyes. Raised a foot into the empty air in front of me. That's when it happened. I hesitated. Hesitated just long enough for my life to take a very different turn. A dry, sardonic laugh echoed through the night. A kind of world-weary chuckle that suffocated the seriousness of my intent in an instant. I opened my eyes and turned around. A figure was idling towards me out of the darkness. Nice night for a walk, eh? His tone was breezy and light. I did my best to ignore him, but he walked up and sat himself down on the wall beside me, facing into the bridge. He took out a small pouch and began rolling himself a cigarette. Halfway through the process, he looked at me sideways, his eyes glinting in the orange streetlights. So, how's things? I stared down at him. Just peachy, thanks. He laughed again. Yeah, looks like it. His nimble fingers produced a toothpick-thin cigarette, which he licked and lit with the dexterity of a stage magician. He took a long, deep drag, then exhaled a thick plume of smoke out into the night. The silence stretched out between us like thick toffee. Eventually, I couldn't stand it any longer. Now look, I don't want to talk about it, and you can't do anything to help me, so you might as well leave and just let me get on with it, okay? Fair enough. I've never exactly been a good listener anyways. Right. Right. Good. Good. He took another drag, letting the smoke hang for a moment in the empty air. But how about you do something for me first? Now it was my turn to give a little laugh. <laughs> for you. Like what? Oh, it's quite simple, really. You just give me a year of your life. A, a year of my life. Is there an echo out here? You're crazy. Says the guy about to take the shortest swim of his life. What have you got to lose? You've been the master of your life so far, and where has that led you? To this one-off, high-dive performance for an audience of one? He grinned, his eyes twinkling from beneath his shaggy, unkempt hair. You don't want it anymore, so give it to me for just one year. This isn't some kind of sex slave thing or something, is it? A deep chuckle reverberated across the bridge. Oh, no. No, no, nothing like that. You place your life in my keeping for twelve months. After that, we part company. You can do whatever you please. Your life is your own again. And if you want to come back here, well, that's entirely up to you. He threw his cigarette over his shoulder... I watched it spiral down to the rushing water below. Just one year. 
No time at all, really. Considering you'd be a long time dead. And I still think you're insane. Why should I trust you? He grinned. You, my friend, are an excellent judge of character. He reached into his pocket and pulled something out, holding it out to me in his closed fist. Call this your insurance policy. I sat down beside him on the wall of the bridge, legs dangling over the river beneath, and put my outstretched palm under his fist. He opened his hand, and something small but reassuringly heavy dropped into mine. It was a tiny, double-barreled revolver, inlaid in silver with a pearl handle. It looked old, well-worn. It's a Derringer. I'm told it's an antique. I turned it over in my hand. Careful now. It's loaded. Try it. I pointed it down into the water and pulled the trigger. There was a sharp crack, and the tiny weapon jumped in my hand as the bullet splashed into the river. One shot left. That's your get-out-of-jail-free card. It'll save you the drive back here if you ever went out of the deal at any time. And, if you're worried about me doing you a mischief, well, that's your security right there. You're holding all the aces, friend. So now, what's it gonna be? I felt the weight of the tiny pistol in my hand as I considered this strange suggestion. A brand new life. For a year. Free from everything that had driven me here in the first place. It could be like being born again. I had already walked out of my old life. Why not start anew? And it was true. I'd fucked up royally on my own terms. Why not live my life on someone else's for a while. I turned to the wild-eyed stranger and raised the barrels of the miniature gun squarely to his forehead. He was right. I did have nothing to lose. A wide grin broke across his face and a twinkle of something light. Anticipation danced in his eyes. I think we have a deal, I said pocketing the revolver and striding away from the bridge. There's an old Chinese curse I've always liked. It just says, may you live in interesting times. Well, my life certainly got more interesting from that night on. My mysterious benefactor, if you could call him that, was... Unlike anyone I'd ever met, he showed me that beneath the surface of things, behind the veneer of humdrum normality that most people work hard to lose themselves in on a day-to-day -day basis, there's another deeper world lurking in the cracks and the shadows that is quite unlike anything you've ever experienced. My newfound friend and I traveled to all the secret corners of the world, met people who seemed to straddle the boundaries between what was real and what was other. In those twelve months, we lived every possible kind of life you can imagine. We dallied with the drunks and down-and-outs in the nether realms of New York. 
rub shoulders with the rich and famous on the streets of Monte Carlo, and even lived for a time in a weather-beaten croft in the remote and desolate highlands of Scotland. My companion seemed to know everyone, and could open doors into areas that I never even imagined could have existed. He seemed to exist on the margins of reality himself. He was definitely insane, that much was certain, but his insanity was infectious, and he introduced me to countless other strange and unique individuals around the world. It would be too easy to dismiss it all as a kind of madness. The shared covenant of the insane, which my companion inculcated in me while I was in an emotional and vulnerable state. That's the kind of explanation the old me would have put on things. So I could tidy those experiences away in a neat little box and not have to think about them too much. But one of the things I learned, perhaps the most enduring lesson that I'll take with me to my grave, is the fact that perception is reality. Those dark, creeping things that we faced in the moonlight in Sri Lanka. The shape-shifting miasma that we cornered in a back alley of Wall Street. Even the nightmarish entity that almost stole away both of our minds in those toilets in that illegal club in Munich. Though they might not seem possible in your world, their existence is as real to me now as the ground beneath my feet. I still bear the scars, physical and mental. Whenever I asked my companion about himself or his life before we met, all he would give me was a tight-lipped little grin. Me? I'm just another pilgrim, he'd say. A fellow traveler, just like you. Eventually, I stopped asking. In the end... It didn't really matter. I closed the door on my old life the moment I walked off that bridge. And now, everything was a voyage of discovery. There didn't seem any point in looking backwards. Not when every day held such challenging and testing new experiences for me. It was all I could do to keep up with him. I felt like a tightrope walker, afraid to stop and look down for fear of falling. I lost track of time as the year wore on. I knew we were balanced precariously on the very edge of reality, between madness and sanity. And I knew that we were playing a very dangerous game. Even as I was exploring these new realms that my companion had opened for me, I think I always knew that things were destined not to end well. You can't play fast and loose with the rules of reality like we did and not expect it to come back one day and kick you in the face. Eventually, it was the turn of the seasons that reminded me of our deal. The sting of winter was gathering in the air again. The derringer seemed to weigh more heavily in my pocket than ever. In all that time we'd spent together... It had never left my side. I began to think about what would happen once the year was up. Would we just 
go our separate ways, would I be left to fend for myself again, knowing what I knew, having seen what I'd seen? There was no returning to my old life. That was for sure. Those days already felt like a half-remembered dream. I was suddenly very aware of time passing. My companion seemed to grow more and more distant as the days rolled on. Did he have a plan for when the year was over? Was he hatching another mad scheme with me at the center of it? Or maybe it was just me. Maybe. As the deadline drew closer, I was getting paranoid. And my newly attuned senses were picking up on things that simply weren't there. Still, I began to look on my friend with new eyes. He'd always been secretive by nature, and now I began to read a dark intent into his every move. I'd seen him be callous, even brutal in the way he dealt with people, and I knew how easily he could turn on a whim and throw my world upside down. He was a man of his word, but... Once our deal was done, there was no telling what he might have in store for me. We returned to my hometown without a word said between us about the looming deadline. The old streets that had once been my home seemed peopled by sinister shadows and malicious whispers that died away before I could catch them. The place was utterly alien to me now like a cheap stage set full of bad bit-part actors. It gave me a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach to be back there again. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. My companion appeared to grow more distant with each passing day. He seemed flat and uncommunicative. And my growing fear and suspicion filled his silences with unspoken yet sinister motives it got so that I could hardly bear to be around him his very presence began to feel threatening to me and his unpredictable and eccentric nature which I had once found so intriguing and only instilled in me a growing sense of dread I became convinced that I had to do something and do it soon before the year was up a kind of heavy malignancy seemed to hang in the air tainting everything it touched. The tension was almost unbearable. We were driving back to the bridge in his van when things finally came to a head. He wouldn't say that that's where we were going, 
but the streets themselves seemed to lead us there with an eerie inevitability. It was a year to the day since we'd struck our little deal, and as the time ticked on, I grew more uncomfortable by the second. Pull over. My voice sounded thin and wavering against the low growl of the van's ancient engine. He looked over at me with something like resignation in his cold blue eyes. The van slid to a halt in a small alcove in the outskirts of town. And so we come full circle, he muttered under his breath. I took the Derringer from my pocket and again pointed it squarely at his forehead. It looked ridiculous in my oversized hand, like a child's toy. But something in my manner must have conveyed the seriousness of my intent. He shut off the engine. Get out of the van, I said, still without a clue as to what I was going to do next. Without a word, he opened the door and slid out of his seat. I followed, the cold night air washing over me like icy water. We faced each other by the side of the road, the lights of the city twinkling in the background. So, now what? As ever, he seemed entirely unfazed by this new development. I was about to ask you the same question. Well... That was always your problem. Too many questions. By now you should know that you find the answers in the doing of things and not in the asking. What does that even mean? I was getting flustered. He remained cool as a cucumber. Look, I want to know what you've got planned for me. Where we go from here. How should I know? You get your life back. What you do with it is entirely up to you. Somehow I doubted that. But how could you do that? Just walk away. After everything we've seen, everything that you've showed me. He shrugged. What were you expecting? Some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? No. No, 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 there's no end point. No goal. Things just continue on, and what goes around comes around, and around, and around, and around. Yeah, thanks for that, Yoda. That cleared things up on no end. He gave a tired little half-smile. I think deep down we both already know how this is going to pan out. Let me force your hand. He reached into his pocket, and in an instant my heart was in my mouth. Don't move! You'll be needing these. He threw something towards me. I caught a glint of metal in the fading twilight. Did I mean to pull the trigger? I honestly don't know. It all happened in an instant. The crack of the pistol sounded obscenely loud coming from that dainty little toy gun. But the bullet somehow found its mark despite my trembling hand. And the man who had been my constant companion for the last twelve months instantly crumpled to the ground. I looked down to see what he had thrown at me. Two bullets for the Derringer lying in the dirt by my feet. 
I dragged his body into some bushes by the side of the road and sat in the van to think. I rolled myself a cigarette to calm my nerves. As the van filled with smoke, I loaded up the gun with the two bullets I'd been given. I sat there for a very long time. Loaded gun cradled in my hand. Eventually, I came to a decision. I put the gun back in my pocket, started up the van, and drove out to the bridge. The place where it had all began. Maybe my companion had been right. Things should turn full circle. The events of the last year cycled round and round in my skull. There was no way I could go back to living a normal, humdrum life. Not after everything I had seen. There was simply no place for me in that world anymore. Everything had lost its luster. When your only choice is no choice, you just do what has to be done. I pulled up at the bridge and got out of the van, walking towards the parapet. I felt empty and numb, like a machine just going through the motions. Then I stopped dead in my tracks. There was a figure already standing there, framed in the cheap neon glow of the streetlight, gazing down into the still waters below. Another pilgrim. A fellow traveler. I let out a dry, sardonic laugh and walked towards the bridge. My fingers lightly caressing the derringer in my pocket. After all, when you really think about it, a year's really not a long time at all. Is it? Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom. And you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the Internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com. The place to find a pet-friendly place. It seems objects set in motion do tend to stay in motion, especially on the Horror Hill. Our second story tonight deals in death, destiny, 
And what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? I give you... Lighthouse. Written by Sauron Narnia. My name is Alaric Tell. On November 5th of last year, I attended a dinner party with some fellow historians from Hofstra University and returned to my home just before 11 p.m. My small farmhouse, deep in the countryside, was covered in winter wrens, hundreds of them, watching me silently. That was how I knew my enemy was issuing a call to combat. A call I was obliged by tradition to obey. At the age of 57, I was fortunate to have lived long enough to be ready. I looked fondly at the house I dwelled and studied in for a decade, and drove away from it without going inside. The wrens, upon seeing me leave, flew up into the night sky en masse, having played their part, unknowingly delivering a message that they could not comprehend. I drove 84 miles to a small, private estate in Nyack. I parked my car in front of a tasteful but long-abandoned house set on seven acres of woodland. I took an electric lantern from the trunk of the car and walked around to the back of the property, and then down the grassy slope to a tiny strip of beach, bracing myself against the cold wind. Two rowboats were tied to a very short pier tapping against each other as they bobbed up and down. I carefully climbed into one of them and unhooked the rope that held it in place. It was approximately a 45-minute journey to my family's island across Little Peconic Bay. I had to stop rowing several times to warm my hands and my ears however I could. The silhouette of the aged lighthouse where I would do battle became visible against the stars halfway there. It was taller than I remembered. I had not seen it since I was a child of twelve, and my father had told me of its significance late on the day after Christmas, as we stood on our little beach, looking off toward the island I was now visiting for the first time in my life. Once a year or so, as an adult, I came to the estate merely to ensure that the house, grounds, and most importantly, those two rowboats were being maintained. Sometimes I would look toward the island in an attempt to see the place where my life would likely end, but not often. The lighthouse stood a few hundred yards off the beach where I dragged the rowboat onto the sand. A rough, poorly demarcated path led over some scrubland that became more and more dense as I walked it. When I reached the lighthouse, I pressed my hand against the cold wood at the front door and pressed inward. No human hand had performed this task for seventy years. Inside, the darkness and silence of a forgotten pharaoh's tomb, there was a smell like dead, wet leaves and spoiled wine. The lighthouse had not been operational since 1927. I turned on my lantern and climbed the winding stone stairs to the top of the lighthouse. 
The only sound I heard was that of the humble waves against the beach, just barely audible. The stairs ended in a small circular room that looked out over the bay through a pair of windows clouded and caked with the remnants of age, though they had never been broken. No one came to this island. Not ever. Those who did approach... Adventurous tourists or tipsy boaters curious about these ugly little twelve acres were invariably haunted by a strange and terrible feeling that an inexplicable danger was here. Many years ago, the Secretary of State of this country landed here while on a solitary sailing excursion that ran into some minor distress. He wrote to a friend later that he had been overwhelmed by a feeling of dread the moment that he set foot on the beach and upon returning to the comfort of his cabin found himself inexplicably frightened of rising from his bed for an entire day looking through the west window I saw the tiny shape of that second rowboat drifting across the bay toward the island navigated by my enemy he would be arriving soon I should have been too cold to stand there, waiting for him. Too cold, the ancient stone conducting the chill into my body. But now that I was on the island, I was able to use the white magic to warm myself. I could have stayed there all night, sleeping uncovered on the floor if I had wished it. But, of course, there would be no sleep for either of us. He knocked on the door twenty minutes later. I opened it to see a young man standing there in the darkness. A man of no more than thirty-five years. I held up the lantern. His hair was cut mercilessly short, and he was clean-shaven. He was quite thin and wore a denim jacket and very dark blue jeans. He announced his name, which was Froche and asked for entrance, which of course I granted. His accent suggested he had been raised somewhere in northern Poland, or so I had guessed. He put his hand out to shake mine, and I did so. He followed me up the spiral staircase. He was wearing a knapsack over one shoulder, and in the high room he set it on the musty stone floor. From it, he produced a bottle of Domaine de la Romanée and said he trusted I had a fine palate. There was also caviar, the finest, he assured me, and crackers and a wedge of cheese, if that was more to my taste. Two plates and two glasses that my enemy informed me had been crafted in Madagascar for a prince. We sat on the floor across from one another, resting our backs against the walls behind us, and ate and drank. And we talked about history, about the vineyard I'd owned and struggled with, about the Napoleonic Wars, about the meals that we had eaten in faraway places. It was quite cordial, as was the custom. The extraordinary wine had no effect on either of us. After our meal... There was still time before the arrival of the final message. And for Froche, that meant time for games. 
He clapped his hands once, and we stood. You first, he invited me. And I nodded, and told him to approach the west window. I had nothing prepared, and so improvised my trick. Look at the shoreline, I told him. He knelt briefly to move the lantern to a different spot on the floor so that its feeble glare would not strike the window pane. He looked almost shockingly gaunt in that light, and I realized I was looking at a very sick man. Perhaps this challenge had been made in haste because of it. He looked downward through the window, seeing a distant horizon tinged in red over Long Island and the sleepy bay that was laid out before us. I began by starting a fire in the sand down there. It rose from nothing, the shivering flames no more than a campfire, three feet high, the only speck of light out there on the island. From the delicate waves that lapped the shore, there then rose seven separate and unique sheets of water, ten feet apart, First, nothing more than spiral wisps, but cohering into more unusual shapes that were definable even in the darkness. My enemy smiled as he watched them. I let them hover on the waves for a moment, and then brought them slowly together to mold my creation. My eyes closed, and I was leaning up against the far wall. The sheets of water that had become arms, legs... A torso and a head merged, and the man was made. He took his first and last steps on top of the water and walked onto the beach toward the campfire had started. He glimmered in the moonlight, six feet tall, stronger and bulkier in frame than I had been, even in my robust youth. I made him kneel down before the fire. His face that of a famous figure from military history, was immediately recognizable to my enemy, who laughed, though his eyes, cruel as any god had ever created, did not laugh. They were incapable of doing so. My waterman raised his arms, and slowly, he leaned forward and tipped over onto the fire. When the water struck it, it was quashed. Nothing remained of him but a puddle on the beach, fanning outward in many directions, quickly becoming ice. My enemy scratched his chin and complimented me on my trick, and then offered to show me something more vivid. I felt the first spidery caress of fear in my heart. Come to the window he said, and I approached. Standing beside him, I felt physically the evil he had brought with him to the lighthouse, to the island, to the earth. Outside, far away, almost a mile perhaps, a lonely sailboat moved across the bay at walking speed toward some distant harbor. Its mast had been lowered. I saw tiny orange lights on its rails. My night vision sharpened more and more, and I saw that the water around the boat was beginning to become choppy. It would do no good to plead for my enemy to stop, so I only watched. 
He had lightened the sky just enough to make clearer the sight I was about to see. I heard no sound when something broke the surface of the water beside the sailboat, erupting upwards. It was a tentacle. A lashing, slithering thing as thick as a stout oak, and it stretched many yards above the sailboat, suggesting it was attached to something below the water ten times its size. The tentacle wrapped itself around the center of the boat and squeezed. The frame buckled, window shattered. I saw but did not hear wood splinter and snap. Then the tentacle pulled the boat downward into the bay. It tilted crazily on its side, the tentacle still squeezing, crushing, shattering, and I hope that its inhabitants were dead before they saw what had brought them to this moment. The boat vanished beneath the waves in seconds, creating a suction pool behind it, the water bubbling and frothing, and very soon it was gone for good. The bay swallowed it whole, and the water became docile again. My enemy turned to me with an awful smile. Up close, I saw that he possessed one artificial eye, an expensive but still obvious replacement. We agreed to have one more glass of wine. He suggested a toast to life itself. Our glasses clinked. As the Domaine de la Romanée soothed my throat, we heard the wolf outside the door, down below. Unseen, it began to howl, low and steady, the sound winding up the staircase. My enemy froze for just a moment with his glass to his lips, then continued to drink. It was then that his face changed before me, revealing itself for what it truly was. A bottomless, obsidian cavity, with pinpricks of blood where a human's eye should have been. Neither his transformation, nor the wolf's howling, lasted for very long. Just long enough for us to hear and honor it. It was time. I asked my enemy what he would have of me, as the host of the battle, and thus obligated to make a sacrifice give up to the hunger of the far spider. He seemed to consider it briefly, though, of course, he had planned his response. Your hands, he said, and again I nodded, so that we would be more comfortable in our final moments before what was to come. I created two simple wooden chairs for us by imagining them. Frosh dug into his knapsack again. I expected him to draw from it a knife or machete of some sort, but these were modern times after all, and instead he handed me a pair of heavy C-shaped metal boxes that fit easily into my palms. He instructed me on their use. All I needed to do was trigger a small, taut, one-inch wire that stretched between a small cutout section of each to make them operate. It seemed quite simple. I asked him in a somewhat unsteady voice where he had come across such devices. 
Kosovo, he told me. We took our respective chairs. I now sat roughly where my father had in 1943, just two months after returning from Bastogne, and where my grandfather had sat in 1920, and where his brother had sat only six years before that. That man, Carl was his name, had been asked to give up his eyes as sacrifice. So, perhaps my own wasn't so terrible. I looked at my enemy calmly by the light of the lantern. He wished me safe travels in the world beyond this one, and I wished him the same. I relaxed and allowed the cold to claim my body once again, and that feeling was so strong in my spine as to be almost pleasurable. I looked up through the east window at the small sliver of moon. I told my enemy that the wolf had returned to its place beside the conqueror, and we were free to do as we must. Yes, he said, and told me I should proceed. Now. Closing my eyes one last time, I opened my mouth, and tensing my body against the trauma that was coming for me down a black and rotting tunnel unleashed a deep, throat-ripping shout, hollering from the depths of my pitied soul, craning my head backwards, directing the sound off the cobweb-laden ceiling above me, holding my hands far outward from my body as I had been instructed. I depressed the wires in both explosive devices. My hands were there one second, gone the next as a thrumming crack echoed in the circular chamber and the device exploded. Shrieking pain snaked up both my arms and into the center of my chest, pulling and tearing at my heart from either side of my body. I sensed my enemy moving across from me as every bit of magic I held within flowed outwards and over him in a venomous wave of power. I opened my eyes to see him being lifted upwards out of the chair, his feet rising off the floor, his entire body rising vertically before me. Three feet off the stone, then five, he levitated and stared hatefully down at me, and I believe now that it was salt water pouring out of his eyes, salt water running down the front of his collared black shirt. Then those eyes became grotesquely enlarged in their sockets as light pulsated behind them. A light of no color. A light possessing such energy coiled behind it that it could have cracked the earth if sent beyond the island. Instead, as Froche hovered in the air, reaching out toward me with the violently trembling arms that appeared to be trapped in the kind of haze within which one sees desert mirages, he spat his own magic at me with the force of nuclear fission. I felt myself being lifted up, up, and then pushed downward again. A sightless and powerless ragdoll, I struck the floor and then felt my body being propelled into it, into the stone, matter driven impossibly into matter. I felt the stone envelop me and I could see the ceiling high above as I descended, literally absorbed into the structure of the lighthouse. 
six feet deep, then ten, my molecules swimming in darkness. I felt my body becoming thinner and thinner, till there was only enough flesh on my bones to keep them intact. I caught a glimpse of my enemy staring down at me, and that was when I blacked out. For me, the battle was over seconds after it had begun. The last thing I heard was a roar, half human and half animal, emerging from my enemy as he spent the last parts of himself trying to destroy me with his chaotic and murderous mind. When I awoke, it was daylight. I was on the ground, lying face up. A gray drizzle struck my face. It was dawn, but of which morning I did not know. I was deep in the woods, resting on a natural bed of leaves, surrounded by dying trees and silence. My vision was blurry. My head was pounding. I looked down at my prone, withered body. It had once been the body of a relatively fit man of fifty-seven, but I was perhaps thirty pounds lighter than I last remembered myself. Blood had dried on the cuffs of my long-sleeved shirt and spattered all the way up to my shoulders. My hands were gone. For fear of what I might see if I looked too closely, I gazed at the cloudy sky until consciousness left me, which happened with blessed speed. I must have found my way to the nearest road, or perhaps been found by a concerned stranger. For I remember the siren of an ambulance, and the image of an Asian woman leaning over me in the back of one. She was frowning, concerned not for the stumps at the ends of my arms, which had been crudely wrapped in gauze to stop the life-threatening blood loss, but for the twisting of the straps that held me taut to the support in which I lay. After the intravenous drips, a darkened hospital room indistinct voices. I let myself drift in and out of sleep. Day became night. Night became day again. And the cycle repeated. To avoid speaking, I embraced entirely the fog that enveloped me. When I could no longer feign unconsciousness or avoid the questions of the medical staff, I pleaded amnesia. I remembered nothing. I said, of anything that came after the dinner party. That seemed to satisfy them. I told them to refuse all visitors. They released me a day later. I did not particularly listen when they described their rehabilitation process to me, and the options I had for living life with my new handicap. I needed to simply be away from there as soon as possible. An orderly helped me put my clothes on, and I got into a cab outside the hospital. The cab driver, a man from Kenya who had once attended medical school, drove me all the way to the estate after I invited him to take my wallet and my bank card and make a single stop to withdraw as much money as it would take to deliver me to my destination and then complete one more task for me. We pulled onto the estate well past dark. It was five days after I had met my enemy. 
My driver followed me around toward the back of the house. Once or twice, he had to assist me when I became dizzy. I had not eaten for several hours and nearly passed out. When he asked me if I lived in this grand house, I told him no one had for thirty years. There were other rowboats, older and more decrepit, housed in the horse stable on the most forested side of the property. Unfortunately, I was not able to help the driver in dragging one down to the shore. We climbed in, and he manned the oars. It was even colder than it had been five nights before, but he complained not at all. I was certainly paying him enough not to do so. Like me, he had to stop rowing every five minutes to warm his hands and his ears. When the rowboat bumped against the shore of the island, I bade him wait for the fire I felt myself just strong enough to create. He seemed confused at the sudden appearance of this fire nearby, but walked off towards it after asking me if I was going to be able to make it to wherever I was going. I knew he would be more confused still when he saw that the fire's foundation was only sand, but I cared little. Cradling a lantern in the crook of my right elbow, I staggered through the brush and scrub toward the lighthouse, which stood dark as ever. I pushed the front door inward. As I did, I looked to my left, sensing a presence nearby. There, in the tattered undergrowth, beside a withered tree, stood a gray wolf. It looked at me emptily, with neither respect nor contempt, only a vacuous animal curiosity. The wolf, the island's only permanent resident, hundreds of years old, watched me enter the lighthouse. I made my way with great difficulty up the winding stone staircase, gently touching the insect-infested wooden handrails built by my great-great-grandfather, the most powerful warlock in all of North America. There was more illumination in here than before. The moon was full and bright. I could not steady myself with my hands, and so the going was quite slow. Five steps from the top of the staircase, my foot kicked something, and there was an echoing clink. I saw, by the light of the lantern, the empty bottle of wine that I had shared with my enemy. What was it doing here? I wondered. And I stayed where I was for a long moment, knowing that magic was not the only way I could be killed. I listened for some tiny whispers of sound that might tell me Frosh was still somewhere above or behind me in the dark waiting to stab me to death or cut my throat. There was a thin, reedy, whistling sound coming from high above me. It was the wind seeping through a shattered window up there. The longer I stood, waiting for Frosh to appear, the more frightened I became, and so I moved on. I reached the top of the staircase and looked into the circular room. Leaves skittered across the floor, having blown in through gaping holes in the glass all around. I could only see clearly between breaths, for the frosty air that emerged from my mouth clouded my vision. However, 
There was nothing here to remember, save for the thing that now defaced the center of the room. A crude, new feature that will not be seen by any man until the night my son comes to the lighthouse. Hopefully, after having lived a full and happy life. But not so old as to have lost too much of his considerable powers and cast the pale glow of his lantern across the lonely enclosure. The mummified body of my enemy was partially embedded in the floor. Withered and shrunk by half as if the work of a thousand years had worn him to a fragment of what he'd once been. Like the indistinct ghosts of Pompeii, he had been entombed in stone, knees fused to the floor as he crawled plaintively toward the window, one arm outstretched, as if reaching it would have saved him somehow. There was very little detail of his face left, but what was there spoke of a pain few can ever imagine. The man's mouth was open so wide in a silent scream that the very structure of the jaw had mutated. He was not the only man to have become a permanent part of the very structure of the lighthouse. Dozens of seemingly natural flaws, indentations, and bumps in the stone throughout were... Actually, upon closer examination, remnants of the fallen. Toward the bottom of the staircase, thirty inches up the wall on the left side, was the shape of a man's foot, wholly embedded and seeming to push out from within. Further up the staircase, on the opposite wall, was what appeared to be the crown of a man's head, enveloped entirely in the blind stone. A mutation in the ceiling above me was, in actuality, the right side of the screaming face of the malevolent African shaman who had challenged my father for supremacy in 1943. The rest of the shaman's body, torn asunder in the battle that took place in this room, was scattered in bits and pieces throughout the walls, as were the bodies of the other evil men who had tried and failed to make my family succumb. Eyes, hands, fingers, bits of body too small to be identified, all were sealed just below the surface of the stone inside this lighthouse where the world was defended from destruction. It served as a grotesque museum of our hollow victories. My son would be the next to fight. An invitation would come in the form of a gathering of silent winter wrens. He would have to leave his family in the small hours, perhaps never to see them again. He would row to the island to face his enemy. It would happen just once in his lifetime. He was now 32 years old. I myself need never use the island again, thank God. Soon I'll be dead, but it will not be a violent death. And never will I need to return to the lighthouse and cast eyes through the darkness upon the hideous statue of an evil man who will not be the last to make that little room into a place where unthinkable combat is waged beside a sleepy bay.
thank you for joining me tonight at the Horror Hill. Lighthouse was written by Saren Narnia. Saren Narnia is the author of the Knife Point Horror Podcast and also writes audiobooks collected in the podcast Those Snowy Nights You Read to Me, They'll Never Be Forgotten. He can be found at www.sarin-narnia.com and wandering the cafes of Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by, yours truly, Jason Hill. Additional performers have been featured when necessary to bring the tales to life. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Luke Hodgkinson under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's artwork and logo by Jason Hill. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure that you never miss an episode. And please, leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Thursday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button too to tell us how we're doing. Oh, and if you could, please leave a kind word or even a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, including more performance from yours truly, and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Thursday with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, this is Jason Hill. Good evening.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.